This snowy morning, that black crow I hate so much, but he's beautiful. Hey everyone, welcome back to Solar Scene. This is the fourth episode in our nature semester. I opened with that little haiku from the Japanese maestro, really, Basho, because we've had some snowy mornings here ourselves. And also, I think in the nature discussions we've had so far, we've talked a lot about loves, passions, and just the pleasures of being outside. We haven't talked about those irritants, just those、mm. little, maybe villains, or、uh, maybe you've got a nemesis, a particular crow, a particular type of mosquito that always comes back for, back for you every year. So that's what this episode's <laughs> going to be about. Oh, you didn't know about that, Alicia? <laughs> I believe it because you have quite the hasty blood, as、yeah. the mosquitoes tell me.、Yeah. And they always swarm you. And if I'm out in public with you, I will have no mosquitoes. You just attract them. You are the fly repellent. I'm like your lucky amulet、mm-hmm. that you got off of some market. <laughs> yeah, I like that poem because it suits the season very well. We've just come into a snowy season after a long fall, which I appreciated. And yeah, the idea of the irritants in nature <laughs> is not what we're talking about this no, week, but maybe、no. we could talk yeah, about them next week. We should, yes. Yeah, because there's a, there's a lot of them. It's like you have this begrudging respect because,、mm-hmm. well, you know, it's nature, so you can't really despise it. But at the same time, you kind of shake your fist in the air.、Mm-hmm. When you're hiking through a kind of bushy patch, and then you get all those thorns scratching you, and、yeah. you're like, "I know that I'm intruding, but why do you have to scratch me?" Or if you get stung by a hornet, wasp,、yeah. or bee, or all three, like you. Yeah, I have <laughs> I have completed that particular trifecta. So on today's episode, what we're going to start out、uh, by discussing is the question of bringing back extinct creatures in the solar scene. You know, we're not really getting into the The nitty gritty. I didn't anyway of like gene editing or whatever particular scientific、um, advancements might allow for this, but more talking, I think, the ethics and also our own personal thoughts on it. This gets into more the science fiction of the solar scene, I suppose.、Mm. But that's okay because I like talking about that. You like talking about that, and also that can also lead to rich discussions, much just like any political discussion or like you know more grounded conversation can as well. Yeah, I think so. Especially because the solar scene's so far in the future that it's like post climate change disasters, post whatever we're kind of on track for. But we know that it's going to be so far in the future that there will be a lot of advancements that perhaps right now are science fiction, but then will be reality. So it might seem silly now, but in a couple hundred years, they might be listening back to this and say, "Wow, wow. these guys were prescient. They knew、yeah. what was going on." And if you want to know what's going on, listener, see how I did that.、Mm. You can buy our zine. We have three different types: one on degrowth, one on education, and a new one called "A Walk in the Wilderness," all about nature. You can、mm-hmm. follow the link in the description. Buy those; they're nice.、Uh, we make them <laughs> ourselves. Put a lot of effort into them. And also, we have a solar scene book club. So right now, they're reading. I say they because I'm not part of that. <laughs> I'm not lame like that.、Um, I don't read. The overstory, right? That's what it's called. Yeah, the overstory. We are getting into part two, but it's a very long book, and it's not hard to catch up on. So, if you want to join, you can send us an email. Emails are on our website, and we will add you in. Thanks for the plugs, Aaron. What were your thoughts on organisms coming back to life? Because mine went surprisingly practical, but I assume yours went expectedly mythological. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. I was, 
I was looking into like all the really, really cool organisms, which now we only know of as fossils and things, like from the Triassic era, just like really far away stuff. You know, I've got some plans regarding mm. puppetry of, of ancient organisms, but I kind of put my Vernian cap on Jules Verne, that is um, my new favorite author. And I was thinking about how to answer this question kind of reveals a little bit about the, the person. You know, it's, it's kind of a, a deep question and also what we value as a species in terms of which organism would you like to bring back? Because it's like, do you value novelty? Do you value like maybe it's used to humans or is it, you know, do you just want to see something really cool? And you would think that I went for something really cool, but I tried to think of something a little bit more meaningful that could lead to some more discussion. So the first, there were two organisms that I thought these would be really cool to bring back. The first one is called the Xerxes Blue, which okay. were butterflies that lived in California, like on the sand dunes, and they were probably America's first butterfly species to go extinct because of habitat loss, because of humans, mm. like urban development and stuff. But they were last seen around 1945, so not many years ago in the grand scheme of things. Um, and there has been some potential to revive the species by like crossbreeding its cousins and stuff, which mm -hmm. I think is kind of cool. But I also don't think that would really bring back the species, at least not in a way that I would call it. It would be kind of a new one that heavily resembles the old one, like a, a facsimile. And I chose this species because they're very beautiful butterflies. They have like gossamer wings. It's a very delicate shade of blue. And I just think it's the most unindustrial looking organism I could think of. Like it's mm. the least... Um, oil sandsy type of <laughs> type of being that I could picture. It's the least Mordor thing. And butterflies in general, they just seem like fairies to me. They seem like magical creatures and it doesn't seem like they should be able to coexist alongside gas stations. Like it seems like the two things are just diametrically opposed. And I suppose in this instance, they unfortunately could not coexist with the gas mm -hmm. stations. But I thought we could bring these back kind of as a reminder of just the the, the delicate splendor that is some parts of nature mm -hmm. which we kind of go sledgehammering our way through without much of a care for until maybe until very recently mm. yeah i was also thinking a lot about the idea of bringing back species through not literally reviving them like in Jurassic park but as you said they were doing with this butterfly making a species through breeding and such yeah. that just really resembles it or fills the void in an ecosystem mm -hmm. So because ecosystems are so complex, it was hard for me to find an organism, a specific one. But I think in the solar scene, we'll, there'll be a process of bringing back organisms that went extinct that were crucial to entire ecosystems. Okay, so you think, because I kind of skipped over the question of should we do this, mm -hmm. you think in the solar scene we should? I think nature will do it to an extent. However, given the current course of extinction, the rate of extinction yeah. upwards of 100,000 species per year in the next few years, it's like we might have to step in to undo our wrongs by helping it out a little bit. Ah, you just mean as a form of like ecosystem adjustment. Like yeah. we've had to do this. I was considering the question as in ecological issues are solved. Mm. It's the solar scene, but some species went extinct. Should we bring them back? Okay, so you're in like the later stages of solar scene. I'm in like the first 100 years of solar scene. Well, it's a baseline of... <laughs> things, things are fine. That kind of is what defines the solar scene. Yeah. But anyway, I think we'll bring back species that we need. But also, 
I was considering the more fun ones. My first thought was that river dolphin. They lived, used to live in rivers, but recently went extinct. And I just think that was really cool. Of like dolphins who are ocean creatures living in rivers. But I was also thinking of bringing back urban reptiles. Because in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, there were turtles in the sewers. In, in Spider-Man, there was a lizard human. Yes. And I like... You know that those weren't <laughs> historical dramas. That's why it's cool. That's why we bring it in the solo scene. Okay. I think but you said bringing back. Bringing urban bringing reptiles. Okay. Bringing forth. I think that's to do with climate. Because when we, when we went to Mexico, there's lizards running all over the cities. Yeah. But I like that. <laughs> so just move further south. Yeah, you're right. But we will create cold weather reptiles. Okay. So they'd be like snow turtles. Yes. Snow snakes. So you're actually going more fantastical than I do. Yeah. <laughs> snow, snow, snow turtles. <laughs> but I just like... Commonly known as snurtles. I like the look of that. I know that it's not a thing, but I think it would be really cool if, yeah, you have your dogs running around. The squirrels hopping around the snow, but then also some reptiles, some greens, some okay. crispy things. So the second organism that I thought would be good to bring back, I was thinking more, what I wrote down on this page rather melodramatically was writing our wrongs. And this is like, I wanted to do something that we very, like I said with the Xerxes Blue, with the butterfly, we made that extinct. But mm -hmm. it wasn't deliberate at all. Like we went hunting it. But this is the Atlas bear, which was a bear species native to North Africa. I don't think there is one anymore. Um, it was brown. It had like a reddish underside. And it's kind of a famous story because it was hunted quite vehemently by the Romans. In the Roman Empire, as it expanded, they were hunted for sport and also to be captured and then like pitted against other animals in Rome or gladiators. Mm. And also used for, have this, um, there was a punishment called damnatio ad besties, which means like, you want to guess what it means? Damnation by the beast. Yeah. So yeah. they execute their criminals with these bears. It's unleashing the animals on them. Right. That's. But the Romans didn't drive them to extinction, but they heavily dwindled mm. the, the species. I think the last one was seen in 1870. Okay. So there were firearms around at that point, and also zoos were a bigger thing. So mm. those two plus bear equals extinction. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. Yeah, I definitely thought a lot about the woolly mammoth and other animals that have been hunted to extinction the rhinoceros yeah and but this this one the story of it it just seemed so cartoonishly i mean the, the thing with it is that in ancient rome they didn't there wasn't that much knowledge about ecosystem collapse biodiversity you know these types of things so it they probably just saw species as almost infinite because mm -hmm. there was so much so fewer people on the earth mm -hmm. and the bears were probably so uh populous at some point that it was like who cares if we do this? doesn't mm -hmm. matter. Um, kind of like we still do with some resources today, but I think with animals, at least, we don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and, and just some of the stories about the way they used to starve them um, and mistreat them to increase their desperation while they were fighting and mm -hmm. things like that turned me into like a, an animal rights activist for a moment. When I was reading it, I was like, this is terrible. Actually, maybe we could talk about animal rights next week in some way. Yeah. Animal rights animal in the rights, Sowacine, the Intrinsic value of nature. Yeah, yeah, the philosophy of that. Um, so yeah, I just thought we could bring back the Atlas bear because many, many years ago, we kind of did them wrong. <laughs> yeah. So we should rewrite that. Yeah.
Yeah. Speaking of animals, we did wrong. This week's organism of the week is. Do you see it, Aaron? Yes. Um, ashamed to say I saw it yesterday, but I didn't want to admit that. It kind of looks like a maraca almost. It's like that mm. sh- that white shade of wood, exactly. Hold it like that. <laughs> with these dark brown like ridges along its back. It's a quadruped. It has a very long tail, very straight tail also. Mm-hmm. It looks like, I'm going to guess, it's some kind of fox. It's called the Tasmanian tiger. Ah, okay. It's extinct. Did you draw this in a stylized way or is that actually what it looked like? This is pretty much what it looked like. Okay. <laughs> there were photos of it because it really... The last one in captivity was 1930, so there were photos mm-hmm. of this sweet creature. But you guessed the color. No, they're colorized photos. Oh, okay. So it's kind of orangish, given the tiger name. It has stripes all down its back and tail. And it's a canid-like species. So it looks like a dog in the front half. looks like a wolf or a fox, as you said. But then it has this super hard tail. Like, it's just really rigid. Like, it doesn't okay. move like a normal dog okay. tail. And it just looks like some kind of Frankenstein creature. Like, the head looks just like a dog. The body is a bit more, like, confusing. And then, yeah, the okay. tail. You said it was in Tasmania, right? Yeah. So how, how big were they relative they to They were only 30 pounds. So they were kind of like dog Oh, they were sized. like dogs. Okay, because yeah. I was going to say, you, you remarked yesterday that since it's been snowing here, you notice a lot more dogs. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of big dogs in Montreal. I was wondering if he's possibly domesticatable. Here's the thing. Yeah. When, so they were extinct in mainland Australia for like 2,000 years. So, but that's where they were native to. But some of them lived in Tasmania and New Guinea. And they survived there until the 30s. But when colonializers came to the islands, they brought dogs with them, which kind of won over in the hearts of people so these guys weren't like domesticated but they they frolicked they weren't like super violent or anything like that but then because they were considered pests because they're kind of close to marsupials fun fact they have a pouch like kangaroos yeah they have a little belly pouch um so they were kind of considered a pest and exterminated to extinction it looks like a pokemon i'm not gonna lie maybe it's because of the pikachu-esque ears that you've given it yeah and the hard tail i can imagine having like a 60 hp attack where it just <laughs> stabs somebody like a sword yeah pretty much <laughs> also i lied they're 30 kilograms oh that's, so that's yeah it's quite much a bit bigger heavier, yeah. but <laughs> they're not like they're actually 30 tons they're not they're not huge but they're like they're dog size yeah big dog big dog um they're carnivorous they say like mice and small creatures <laughs> things like that and they're just really cool. Kangaroo-like, but also dog-like. And what did you call again? Tasmanian tiger? Yeah. <laughs> can you just leave the image there for me to look at for the rest of the episode? Yeah, I can. They're also called the Tasmanian wolf. So. Okay, so it's a little bit confusing, the, yeah. that etymology. Mm-hmm. Nice. Nice organisms of the week. Thank you, Tasmanian whatever you want to be. Um, <laughs> just to, to kind of close out this question, I had this quote, which was from someone called Ben Mintir, who's a... Uh, a professor who's also wrote a book called the, the Fall of the Wild. And it seemed to touch on the types of things that we talk about quite a bit. And so it seemed, because he was, this book kind of grapples with the types of questions like, should we bring back species that are currently extinct? He says, will we be able to maintain respect for a wild nature that we are increasingly manipulating, controlling, even attempting to recreate via genetic engineering? 
So the fall I'm worried about is really twofold. The loss of wild species and places in the human age, certainly, but also the fading of the wild as an ethical ideal. Mm. Fading of the wild as an ethical ideal, that's kind of like subtitle for most of our episodes. Mm -hmm. That was a, a quote from an interview he did, not from the book. I'm guessing the book is written probably with a slightly more academic prose. But yeah, I was thinking about that because it's like, we're going to be, if we say we're going to bring back species and stuff, then it's just like we're shaking up a snow globe. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a, you know, we're pulling strings that maybe we should never pull. Yeah. But I don't know. I also had a poem that we could, I wrote, oh, I didn't tell you. I wrote like three haikus for this episode okay. to, to go in addition to, to the Basho one that I opened with. Um, so the haiku says, axe in the valley, swinging freely, then regret re-raises felled trees. Because I think that's kind of a, a metaphor for for this type of conversation. We've been swinging our axe willy-nilly through the, <laughs> through the valley, knocking down trees left, right, and center. And then at some point, we kind of look around us at all the stumps and say, oh, man. And whether it's regret, whether it's just a will to see these, these beautiful elms back up where they mm. should be, we start kind of hastily trying to patch them back together with hot glue or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this really sounds like the book that we're reading, The Overstory. It's just, it's about a bunch of people who aren't environmentalists by any means, but they all kind of come to have that like realization that they're standing in a cemetery of trees and that yeah. they need to do something about it or they just don't do something about it. It's, yeah, it makes like me think a, of that quite a bit. A kind of collective facing of the regrets. And it's, it's not as simple as that because, like I said, with the bear, like that was a large part of the Romans. That wasn't anything to do with you or I, or even with the butterflies. Like we weren't real estate developers or urban planners in California in the 1900s. Mm -hmm. But we have to answer for their inconsideracy. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I also was thinking a bit about the ethics of bringing back species. And I feel like there's kind of this point where it's like, if you have the science, it's almost playing God to choose to not use the science. Whereas like before we had all these things developed, it's like it's playing God to try and extend people's lifespans or extend a species existence in captivity. Yeah. But it's like if we have developed it, if in the past it was chosen to not heed that kind of moral dilemma or face it, and now we have the science, because this goes into the next question really well, of like we can all live really long because of modern medicine so it's like if all of a sudden we chose to just like stop giving people medicine or like stop letting people live long yeah that's, that's playing inhumane. god yeah and <laughs> inhumane in a way that almost worse than like in the yeah definitely worse than in the first place have you seen jurassic park or yes. is it called jurassic adding that to you i'm there? sorry <laughs> I'm sure other people would do that yeah uh and what do you think about that movie has newman in <laughs> newman <laughs> I like Jurassic Park. I definitely always think about like... Do you think it's a profound exploration of this topic? Or do you think it's just a blockbuster? I'd say it's an exploration of the topic. Not profound, because it's like, what did you think was going to happen? Bringing back just these megafauna, mega megafauna yes. of dinosaurs. and But I can see humans doing it and thinking, we'll just have them on this island. It'll be fine. Yeah. Well, I think... What I was kind of, my conclusion was that it depends on the motive of the humans. If it's like, we're going to do this for amusement, amusement park, like Jurassic Park, mm -hmm. 
um, that's a bad thing. Or if we can mm -hmm. do it for sport, or if we can do it just to say like, hey, look at this cool leopard, you know, let's take its skin. Or uh, poachers have take, taken all the rhinos, let's bring them back so we can get more ivory or whatever mm -hmm. it may be. That's obviously bad. But I think if we do it from a genuine, um, it's a humility, I think is the word for it, that mistakes were made um, in, in large part unknowing, like I said with the Romans, like they didn't know what they were doing. And maybe even in, in the case of the butterfly in California, they didn't know what they were doing by just developing, developing, developing. But it's a kind of humility in facing those mistakes. And also, obviously, it would require like immense amount of research and cross-checking and forecasts and like a long period of study to first determine any potential uh, mm -hmm. impacts on ecosystems that bringing back a bear might have. Because <laughs> bears, you know, they eat a lot of things. Yeah. And that might skew things because ecosystems have developed in a particular way. These guys all of a sudden become invasive species, even if they're once native to the yeah. area. Although I don't think that that term actually is, I think, outdated. Invasive species? Yeah, like when we talked about ecosystems. Oh, I remembered. Yeah. I remembered what it was. Oh, for ecosystem. Yeah, it was it wasn't ecosystem. That wasn't the thing that had been outdated. It was the classification of animals into fungi, animals, and plants. The way that we had been taught it. Why? It's well, no, it's not fungi, animals, and plants. There's also like three different microscopic ones. Yeah, there's, there's six or seven two. kingdoms. But there's... Protozoa. Yeah. But I think however we were taught it, that's the thing that has changed. It wasn't ecosystems. Why don't you remember how we were taught it? We were taught I it think, the three, and then they were like, no, oh, I there's never, these other ones I wasn't taught there. three. I knew there were more. I, I think I was taught five or six. Okay. But it's, it's kind of like the continents. Mm. Like everyone has a different idea of how many continents there are. Yeah. It's like, is Antarctica? Does that, is it is that, what is that? I still don't know. Is that just a big ice cube or something? I think it's like that with classification, but there's different theories of classification. Exactly. You know, like there might be some way of classifying it, but there's only two kingdoms. Mm -hmm. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> um, next question was, how has modern medicine and living longer distanced us from various natural processes? Um, I'll start with my haiku for this one because you already read it, I think. It yeah. says, sun and learned care given outside, given all, demedicalized. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like demilitarized, but I didn't mean it as in um, moving away from modern medicine. Not that at all. It's like taking away the the capital M from medicine, I think, and just changing the aesthetic of it wholly mm. by keeping it what it is, but demedicalizing it. So it's not called like, why does everything start with like RX? It's like, what does that mean? Yeah. And a long string of numbers. I don't think that's good. But what did you, before I get into that, how did you answer this question? <laughs> I took it in that direction for sure a bit about valuing traditional medicine natural medicine literal natural medicine of just like the power of trees and flowers on our healing but i also took it in a to see the positives of living longer and modern medicine so i think i'll start with those just to share i think that throughout most of human history because we were so beholden to the elements, like if it was minus 20 degrees Celsius, you had to stay indoors. You had to stay by the fire. Otherwise, you would perish. Yes. But because of modern medicine and science, we're not as afraid of frostbite. We're not as afraid of catching pneumonia because it can be treated for the most part mm -hmm. where we live. Exact same in the sun. We're not as afraid of heat stroke because like, even if you get dehydrated... It's not that hard to rehydrate. You can just go buy some electrolytes and be fine. Mm -hmm. And sunburns aren't as like terrifying as perhaps they maybe 
once were, but we should still be afraid of sunburns. But I'm just saying, like, all of these things that traditionally would have been, like, forced us to stay indoors or forced us to rest don't anymore, which to an extent is a good thing because we can just be outside year-round. Yeah. And I also thought that we can witness... And yet at the same time, we're, in di- we're inside yeah. a lot more. So that's <laughs> the, the other side be. of it. Yeah, theoretically. <laughs> yeah. One thing also is that we can witness changes in a way that we didn't used to. Like when a lifespan was like 60 years, you wouldn't witness the changes of your environment as much. So it's like you'd live a lifetime. And now we kind of have those extra few years in the other end where yeah. it's like you can see a tree literally go from a sapling to like a full on tree. I don't know. It's just like I feel like that's also kind of a benefit. It's kind of cool. We're going to be alive to see the widespread adoption of the metaverse. Woo. It's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of split this question into two things. Like it changes our perception and it changes the actual events which, you know, actually happen, like that form our lives. And with perception, I was thinking, like COVID came to mind immediately because that's such a big and recent health thing, vaccine skepticism and things like that. And I know that that's been around for centuries, you know, whatever, like people, people skeptical of doctors, medicine, like, oh, I don't trust that kind of science. But I, I really think the, the very recent in the grand scheme, like sterile, hyper sanitized image of like scientists in lab coats and test tubes and beeping computers being a hospital or like being the place that medicine is developed i don't think people like that Mm. i don't i don't like that even like i know it's the case and i know that objectively that's the best way to heal people and things but it's not i mean people don't like it like it's it's empirical you can see Mm -hmm. that people prefer the the more natural image yeah because that that is the word that come to mind it would be like that's unnatural mm-hmm. and i know that like everything that we do is unnatural per se like let's say you make some blend of like herbs to heal someone and put over a wound that's still unnatural because you are making it mm-hmm. it's it's just it's much closer um in steps to nature rather than being ground down specific compounds isolated and then merged mm-hmm. in a laboratory and other things formed it reminds me a little bit of when I was in school, I remember in elementary school, some someone came around to talk about food, talk about health. And she said, you know, when you're reading the ingredients on food that you see at the grocery store, if you can't pronounce anything, it's probably bad for you. And it's like, that's not really true. But no. aesthetically, that's how people think. Mm-hmm. And not, it's not like a value judgment that people should or shouldn't think like that. That's just how they think. Yeah, how we think. I think that's why we're drawn to diets like the raw food diet yeah. or things because it's just like there's a massive swing in the other direction. You can see it. Mm-hmm. And what annoys me is that people look at those kind of things. They're like, oh, these nut jobs with their crystals and like eating so much liver. But you can you can see like very clearly where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Like it might not actually be good for you, but it's just it's easy. Like it's not hard on the head. Whereas yeah. if you're trying to shop at a grocery store in like the processed food aisle, like you would burn more calories looking at the labels than (laughs) eating the actual food (laughs) and there's also the thing that it's like perception matters a lot because if someone you know placebo like that's proven Mm -hmm. that that is a huge part of your health like if someone goes into the vaccine thinking this is going to kill me because it's you know a conspiracy or whatever then it's more likely that they will have some side effects versus someone who's just like yeah it's a vaccine you know Mm -hmm. it's good for me yeah it's like that our minds have a lot of power 
I'm reading The Body Keeps the Score right now for another book club. And it's just, so it's this man's life's work. And he's talking about his time as a psychiatrist working in different psychiatric positions throughout his career. He began in like the early 70s. So medicine then was much different than it is now. And so he talks about the move from the hospitals would have gymnasiums. They'd have pools where the patients and the doctors would all like literally just play games together and he was like but with the dawn in the 80s of the the drug revolution of like finding all of these drugs to help with psychiatric conditions they literally paved over the pools paved over the gyms and put cubicles for people to give out prescriptions and he was like i saw that like yes the drugs are doing good but the loss of the (laughs) gyms and stuff like it really broke down the actual healing like the healing of the trauma yeah, because or hospitals like, are such depressing places yeah to be. um what the other side of what you said earlier about theoretically we can live more uh recklessly and still have faith in medicine that you know it doesn't matter if we get a sunburn or whatever i see that more as a negative because mm. people don't take care of themselves yeah and such simple things as sunlight exercise you know getting proper sleep eating well it's like well it's fine i can just medicalize mm-hmm. um which is not good and that's why it's it's kind of like um when i when i criticize the idea of walking shoes on the podcast it's like every shoe should be a walking shoe that's what i think about the term preventative care mm-hmm. it's like that should just be called living yeah that should just be taking care of yourself yeah that should be going to the doctor of like oh how can i avoid this and this and this no one ever goes to the doctor to strengthen themselves no to try and heal i have a lot of thoughts about doctors <laughs> Maybe we'll do a, a medical series at some point. Yeah, but this maybe. is more about our relationship to nature. So the second uh, thing that I want to talk about was the events that actually happened and like our experiences. Mm-hmm. This is that um, first observation. Many people very rarely see blood. It's true. Whereas historically, like you'd be seeing blood all over the place. <laughs> and so we're a lot more squeamish. We never see death. We never see dead animals. Like people are very squeamish about seeing like a, a chicken hanging up or something. Mm-hmm. You are anyway. Yeah. I mean, I probably would be as well. Um, it's like, I watched this interview, I don't know why, with uh, Billie Eilish, right? Musician, popular Gen Z uh, pop singer, old pop maybe, I don't know. And on one of her album covers, she it's like a close-up of her crying. And it's like, okay, it's an, it's an artsy photo shoot, and she has like a tear running down her face. And the interviewer said, how did you, you know, what was the story behind that? And she said, yeah, we we're just doing the photo shoot. And the person behind the camera asked me to cry, but I couldn't. So I said, um, pull up an image of Spirit, the horse, from the DreamWorks animated movie, <laughs> right? Because Spirit, I'm guessing the horse dies at the end or something like that. And that made her cry. And I was like, she's probably, I don't know, a late teenager or early 20s. And that's the saddest thing that she can think of. Yeah. You know, I feel like that's a, for, for most people because we're so, in the West anyway, we're so insulated and we experience death and hardship so much later in life now, in mm. part because of medical advancements. That, I'm like, I'm not romanticizing the past where people were, were always dying. I, that's <laughs> not good. Like, I talk no seriously. Like, no, I talked I about that in the in the previous episode. That it's, we shouldn't romanticize the past, the distant past, for anything because that wasn't good. But we have lost these various things that we should acknowledge and, in some other way, uh, try to replicate i think so mm. we don't all just become dreamworks watching uh tearless yeah i don't know well i think billy eilish is a pretty staunch vegan as well so she probably has quite 
The well, I didn't know animals. that context, but <laughs> it's an animated horse anyway. So it is an animated horse. But I was true. thinking, because of this, do we fear death? Because that's like the ultimate natural process less now, or do we fear it more now? Because another example I had, I was watching a movie that was set in medieval times, mm-hmm. and there was a a couple who were having a baby, and it was a miscarriage. It was a stillborn. And I was watching, I was like, oh man, this is going to be a really sad movie. Mm-hmm. But they just kind of went, huh. like they just kind of sighed and then moved on because that was so normal. Like kids, mm. like infant mortality, that was so, it was so mm-hmm. different. And they had such a different perspective on, on just life and death in general. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the absolute saddest thing that would crush them for years like it perhaps would for if that happened today. Yeah, and it's understandable that it crushes people today. But uh, I think yes, I what we're talking about in the solo scene is the natural life and death cycle of just like creatures, of pets, of things in nature. And I think having an entombment to those things will strengthen us to be better equipped to deal with the big losses in our life. So it's like, oh, you've seen the neighborhood crow. Its lifespan's like seven years or something. And you see it die and you kind of mourn it yeah. on a small scale and you build up resilience. And it's not that I want everyone to be cold, but it's like we want a resilient community. Yeah, I'm not like I said, it's not a value judgment. I'm just saying mm-hmm. this has changed very, very drastically and I think quite quickly. Yeah. Um, another example I had was food. Like we, you and I, have probably never missed a meal. Mm-hmm. Certainly not two in a row. And it's like that's true for a lot of young people now mm-hmm. or people in our position. And so we don't really know hunger. Which, you know, like that's a very natural thing as well. Yeah. And also, it's like we never see violence, which is a key part of the natural world. So it's like, mm-hmm. we don't know that either. Like, it's just a very, a very insulated uh, kind of domestic world that we have now. Mm. Yeah. So in terms of how, what was the question? It's like, how has that changed our How it distanced us from natural processes? Yeah. But I think that's I kind think of answering it. It, it has. Yeah. <laughs> it has distanced us. Yeah. For sure. Oh, I have a lot of thoughts. (laughs) Um, I was listening to a podcast about this hunger experiment that I'd never heard of. It took place in the 40s, like right after World War II, somewhere around World War War II. And it was literally just 36 men being starved for like six months and being studied. Mm -hmm. And it's like obviously the ethics of that would never like you couldn't do that today because yeah, it yeah, scared them for life. But it was just like listening to their experiences because there's recordings of them later in life um, reflecting on it. It's so like literally 60 years after it happened, them telling about it and just hearing them talk about their experience with true hunger made me just like it ruined my day. And it's as you were saying, the sensitivity is just like. I don't know. It's crazy how distant we are from these. Well, this is why I think like that's not a good thing. Like it's not. It is good that humans can always eat now. Like that's Mm -hmm. a lot of humans, should I say? Um, But it's in a way bad that we don't know those elements of the human condition. In any way, you know, if for nothing else, because we can't properly relate to genuine hungry people that there Mm -hmm. are today, a lot of them. So that's why I think like I don't know a fast. Like yeah. a 36 hour or two day fast or something. If that was like a nationwide holiday, like it, it sounds very depressing because, you know, even in Canada, there are also a lot of people who, who can't eat. But like mm-hmm. some optional way of undertaking a hardship like that, I just think yeah. is 
would be good for a lot of people. Yeah, I think so. Just like camping for two weeks. Like just yeah, doing things. I mean, even what, you're going to camp in your RV and watch no. DVDs and. I mean, like go oh, off no, with just. Oh no, I ran out of gluten free uh, <laughs> marshmallow crackers. You choosing hardship, cold yeah. showers. I cold shower, you expose yourself a little bit every day. Yeah. Builds up your tolerance. But even that mm-hmm. is like, that's just nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's no actual threat. I had something interesting about the effect of nature on our healing because we've so distanced ourselves. I've been thinking a lot about hospitals and this is a study that was done on if there's flowers in a patient's room, will they need as much pain medication? (laughs) And it says, no, like if you have flowers in your room, you need less pain medication. Yeah. Like think about if the hospital wasn't a cube, like if it had a window or if it had (laughs) fresh air, like they'd need far less pain medication (laughs) because our bodies release good hormones when we're in nature and it's like if we were choosing to preventatively go into nature and build up our joy levels like fill our cup then when we are faced with something challenging we'd be less likely to falter and then have like a week of recovery we get sick less gets yeah that's definitely well put (laughs) yeah i was also thinking that because we live so long on average it's like you have obviously your connection to nature as a child like most people from age like zero to seven love nature like they're not as obsessed with video games yet it's still their favorite thing to do would be to be allowed to go and climb a tree or sled down a hill and then you get into adolescence and young adulthood and you kind of get preoccupied with like your job and your family and adventures whatever you're doing But then you say, oh, I'll move to the countryside when I'm older or when I Mm -hmm. retire. And then you keep putting it off and you kind of lose that lust for nature. And then when you do retire at age 60, it's like, well, I don't really like nature that much. You're not rolling down hills anymore? Yeah. Yeah, But I think we think we will. So we need to choose to do it in the now because the now is all we have. Whoa, look at that. (laughs) Do you think, like people say that living so long is somewhat unnatural what do you think about the proposed idea to like upload your consciousness into a robot and live forever mm, i don't love that no why not i don't love that you don't think it's solacine i don't think it's solacine because I, I think death is crucial i think death's an important motivator it's just it's the most important thing about life yeah i think so and i think we should be striving for like well-being longer like a longevity that's not just for the sake of being long it's for being living well so it's like yeah we've kind of nailed down the living long even if we were able to upload our consciousness it doesn't mean that it's going to be a happy consciousness even if it were happy though do you think it would be good no i just have an aesthetic <laughs> wrongness with it yeah it's a it's a religious aversion that i have to it almost mm. anyway the third question for today was regarding the uh the appropriate levels of pollution in the solar seam. So we're, we're jumping around a little bit. Yeah. And how to maintain those, make sure they're not exceeded in the solar seam. So pollution, definition, the presence or introduction of a substance to the environment that has harmful or poisonous effects. So there's pollution in the sense of like, oh, all this um, gross particulate matter and smog in the big city makes it hard to breathe. 
So the air pollution levels say really high, I have to wear my mask, that kind of thing. But I just kind of, and I think you did as well, we, we use it as a very general term for anything bad that we put into the environment as mm -hmm. a result of human activity, let's say. Not even just industrial activity, but just breathing. Maybe that's, yeah. a, maybe that's a pollution in some senses. Um, so like emissions, we're counting that. Mm -hmm. Ocean acidification. We're counting that. that. Uh, microplastics, counting that. And I really set about answering the, the, the question kind of using numbers. I was like, I want to know when, when were things fine? Mm -hmm. Like, we've always polluted, we know this, but the earth can absorb quite a lot of this. So my haiku for this question was, I, the earth, absorb plumes of industry and make blooms of purity. Because it's just, it's just this nice um, resilience and transformative power that nature has, which is very wonderful. You know, we don't have to be perfect at all. Mm -hmm. We can be quite a bit bad and things are still 100% yeah. fine. It, we just can't be very bad, you know, with like billions and billions of people. Mm -hmm. But I realized that the question of how much pollution is possible um, without making too many, too many long-term adverse effects is not really answerable mm -hmm. because that definition of pollution we use is so wide and it being such a global issue because emissions, obviously, that's a global thing. But in some senses, um, it's the, the question just requires many, many localized answers. You know, it's like how much of a certain type of pollution can this one river take? Mm -hmm. Or how much um, fertilizer, you know, year after year, can the soil take? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah, you can't really put numbers on it for the whole world is what I'm saying. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was trying to remember, and then I just did before we recorded, what is called the nine planetary boundaries. And those are nine planet-wide thresholds that we have to try to avoid crossing. Because if they're within the boundaries, it's fine. It's like humans, at any level, if we were emitting this much. The oceans can sequester it. It's mm -hmm. all fine. It's all dandy. Yeah, the fungi can break it down. Yes. The whatever and so these nine are i'm going to start with the two that aren't measured yet so there's two one is novel entities so that's like new things that we think up to pollute CFCs the planet with yeah yeah and then the other one is cfc's like atmospheric okay. aerosol levels yeah <laughs> so it's like we that's obviously changes quite a bit because we've been dealing with it for so long so those two haven't been measured but those are two boundaries that we don't want to Exceed. Exceed. And then the next two that are currently within the safe zone. Oh. So good for us. We have yeah. three within the safe zone is stratospheric ozone depletion. Yeah. So that's like messing with we fixed the that. ozone layer. We fixed it. We I did. think it's, it's getting worse again. We fixed it. Um, ocean acidification. So we, it, that's really close. Yeah. That's, and then that's gonna go. fresh water use. So that's polluting rivers, but also... Messing with the cycles of mm -hmm. like freshwater cycles. pollution as well. Is a big yeah. Thing. And then two things that were in the unknown zone. So it's like we're. <laughs> it's like a sonic level. <laughs> so it's like we have crossed the boundaries. Like we, it's not good. Yeah. But it's not irreversible. Yeah. Is with climate change. So that is the manual changing of the climates like deforestation and obviously greenhouse gas emissions. And the other one is land system change. So that's more the like disturbing 
how we use land. So breaking it up with highways or, again, deforestation. So these two are really close, but I think climate change is a bit more the whole system than land is just like the land system. So those two are at a point where it's like we probably could fix it, but it would take a lot of change. Like we've crossed the boundaries. And the two that are high risk, so like off the charts levels of messed up, are biosphere integrity. So that means species extinction. Yeah. Like we've just killed too many species. Like it's really messed up. Those aren't going to recover naturally kind of thing. Or with even a lot of help, like it's always going to be changed. And the final one is biogeochemical flows. So that's the flow of like we've disturbed it with fertilizers and nitrogen with, cycle. Yeah. Cycles. Phosphorus cycles, all those things. Okay. So those two are kind of beyond repair. Like they won't go back to normal. Nice. Um, but if you want to look more into this, you can look up the Stockholm Resilience Center and they explain kind of the actual like what we should be striving for what the planet can sustain and not just like sustain uh, it's working like everything's fine yes. but like actually like we are all thriving if we stay within these boundaries mm -hmm. thank you for coming to my ted talk right <laughs> so how in the soul scene do you think we stay within these boundaries <laughs> i just said we don't admit anything like everything's as circular as humanly possible yeah but <laughs> you were talking about greenhouse gases i'd say yeah well, if you look at the chart, I, th I think, I think, like the last time greenhouse gases per capita were okay um, was in like the 40s, the 1930s mm -hmm. and 40s. So yeah. I, I think, like, that might be wrong, but like there is a time, probably in the last 100, maybe in the last 150 years, that was just before it became like, that's too much. Mm -hmm. for greenhouse gases but also for everything so it's like i just think if scientists figured that out and said okay we need to get back to x year mm -hmm. levels then i think that would that's like good messaging because then people yeah. at the at the uh process could hold up a sign that says like 1923 and it's like yeah. that's the year that you need to correct to but the question of how people in the solar scene stick to it is relevant because today a lot of companies know um and governments know how much we should be pouring into a river let's say um, but we exceed it anyway. Mm -hmm. So I think like it's a boring answer, but strong regulation, strong penalties, but also hopefully in the solar scene, people won't want to. Like mm -hmm. people will have a strong aversion to polluting because we've learned from a young age the actual effects. Like I yeah. never actually learned in, in middle school or high school and certainly not elementary school um, what happens when you put a bunch of a bad thing in a river. Or in the water. Yeah, they just said it was bad. But, but you didn't no, really have we any... never talked about it. Really? No, when, what class would that have been talked about? Yeah, that's a good point. We always had our annual trips to the dump where they'd tell us about these things. Not everyone had that privilege yeah. going to the dump every year. <laughs> but yeah, just telling them from a young age. But I was thinking, as you said, with the policy and regulation, like I think that'll always be necessary because there'd be the one person who went rogue yeah, it'd be more like, than one person because everyone's trying to get financial edge. Yeah. But I remember in one of my first environmental science university courses, um, everyone was so bright-eyed and excited. And then the professor kind of um, quieted the room and she asked, um, so what level of like pollution are, would you want? And everyone was like, none. But she was like, but some though. 
Like you can mm-hmm. you can pour some toxic waste into a river mm-hmm. and have it be perfectly fine long term. So it's just about finding that that number. And I feel like that concept hasn't been explained to people very well. Mm-hmm. That's like a good amount of pollution is just completely fine. Mm-hmm. It's almost depending more on what it is. Like plastics in the ocean, that would be best if there was nothing. Yeah. Or like the heavy metal, you know, contamination of of mm-hmm. uh, like the food chains in the ocean and things like that like those are just bad but like the common pollutants those are fine to an extent like if there's some cows you mean with methane with methane yeah yeah of course yeah humans are always going to excrete co2 so do plants so do plants in the evenings can we come up with another question for next week so we don't have to do it off air again yeah um what's a good Mm, question something Mm. along the lines of science and nature and pollution and technologies emissions i know okay what if we talk about the different biases that we assume people have when it comes to nature like i know that there's a few but i can't remember them so it's like what are these biases that we have so it's like we assume people will if they have the chance they'd cut down the tree to make the lumber to sell but in reality that's not actually the case okay like people are nicer than we give them credit for sure we talk about those types of things. I have no idea what that is. It sounds yeah. kind of psychological, but mm-hmm. okay, let's talk about that. Okay. <laughs> and with that being said, thanks for listening, everybody. Talk to you next week.